Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Joanna Bucknell and you are listening to episode 28 of Talking About Immersive Theatre. That's T-A-I-T, Tate for short. In this episode, um, I am talking to a collective that are Birmingham-based called Itzana. I talked to Jose, Alfredo and Sebastian about the work that they've been making. So no great big uh, kind of introductions. I'm just going to let you get straight at the episode itself. So have at it. Hello and welcome. So we are in the Zoomosphere rather than in a physical space, which is a shame, but hopefully uh, in the future we'll be able to be in the same rooms with each other again. Although we have been in the same room together before because I, I came to one of your performances, which we will get on to talking about. So um, I have here with me today, I have Jose Canseco, who's joining us from Mexico. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. All the way from Mexico. And where Oaxaca. are you in Mexico? <laughs> uh, from Oaxaca State in the south of Mexico. So you're probably having much nicer weather than we are here in the UK right now. <laughs> It is surprisingly cloudy. It's been really cold and windy lately. Uh, oh. I think we might have shifted uh, weather, actually. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it's it's really, uh, and we're, I'm quite close to Birmingham, but it's pretty miserable and cold here at the moment. So. <laughs> oh, so then it's the same here. I mean, we're getting a little bit of sun right now. Uh, mm -hmm. You can imagine the the sun, the, the hot weather a little bit, but then I'm pretty sure it's going to get like windy and cloudy again. Oh. In like a few hours. So, oh. yeah. That's but it's good. It's good. <laughs> Feel good. And um, I also have joining me uh, Sebastian HW and his father Alfredo as well, yeah. who are from Itzatna Theatre. <laughs> yeah. I think I said that right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. So, and you're actually together in the same room, um, joining me uh, from your home, I'm assuming. We are, yeah. yeah. We're, so we're based in Birmingham. Um, in South Birmingham and yeah the kind of the house I like as we were saying before about our namesake is kind of kind of our default kind of de facto venue and kind of like space where we kind of make come up with all the ideas and mm -hmm. and that's kind of influenced like how the kind of the name of like where our name comes from which is called Itzatna Itzatna mm -hmm. let's get mm -hmm. the correct pronunciation Itzatna yeah okay. Exactly. which we is a new word we created which means kind of house of the artists um mm -hmm. and it came from we originally were called itzamna arts which is based off um mm -hmm. there's an ancient mind god of medicine and writing uh but we realized uh, as soon as we kind of started thinking about the name that actually all the other art spaces and art venues in mexico are also called that so we're like we need something a bit more original guys um, <laughs> and so from that we're like well, what if we change one of the letters and the rest is history and then we found out that they originally, you know, there is the two words, you know, they combine together and it creates, you know, houses of the artists, you know, that we, we really like it because we work from home, you know, most of mm -hmm. the ideas, the projects, all the contact with Jose and other people is always from here. It's like the headquarters, you know, it's up now. And it's like my house because I am a visual artist and obviously all around in my living room where we normally work is paintings and designers and all this stuff <laughs> and I think because we kind of formalized in 2021 I think coming out of that post-pandemic space of like the domestic was like the only space we really had um yeah. not by anybody's own choice really um but then <laughs> kind of interrogating that and I think a lot of work after the 2020-21 
kind of frame kind of was really interrogating that and I think mm-hmm. it's interesting kind of in a subliminal way kind of happened for us it didn't wasn't intentional but it, yeah, it is yeah. now perhaps in hindsight well there's something very warm about that as well and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on about Kaza Itzatna as well yeah. but that idea of a home there's something very intimate and very welcoming about that which I think actually is very much at the heart of the, your work that I've experienced yeah. anyway there, there is this kind of welcoming inside something personal and uh, and something local and specific and so your name I think sort of has that has that warmness at the heart mm-hmm. of it that I very much felt when I experienced your work so we will get into that um in a little while but what I wanted to do just really was um talk about a little bit about your backgrounds and kind of obviously uh Seb and Alfredo you're father and son so that relationship sort of figuring out and getting you to talk about how did that blossom into this sort of collaboration <laughs> and then Jose where you kind of came into that and where you fit with that so can I start with um you Seb and just talk a little bit about your background and your training and where you've come from and then move to Alfredo and then you Jose if that's okay sure uh, so yeah. I um so my background as an artist started when I went to uni. Well, I guess in some way, thinking about immersive practice, it started before that. So in Birmingham, in the kind of mid-noughties, I was part of lots of flash mob rave groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think looking back, that really influenced like how this idea of immersive practice and like site-specific work and kind of intervention and kind of that kind of uh, politics and ha- making of the happening was really part of it. Even though I didn't realise it at the time, I think in hindsight, that's definitely... I put that as like the place where it all started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of went to university. I went to art school. I went to Dartington College of Arts, which mm-hmm. RIP doesn't exist anymore. Um, yes. And it merged with Falmer. So I was one of the people who experienced the last few years before it merged with oh, Falmer. Yeah. So I got to have a bit of both worlds. You know, lots um, of people I might know then as well. I've, I've literally, because I'm editing my book at the moment, and one of the people I'm talking to is Ruth Cross, who yes, also is fantastic. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Dartington. And so I've literally been working on that today. Small no world. <laughs> it's a really but small it, world. It is a loss. It is a massive. Yeah. It's, but massive I feel really privileged that we, I managed to experience it before it ended. Um, yes. And so going there really taught me everything. Uh, so much more about making immersive work. And like we, one of the big companies that we were kind of working with was uh, Living Structures, um, who I'm not sure if they're still kind of working, operating now, but definitely in a different scale. I think all of us are existing yeah. in a different scale. They were definitely the end of that generation of like big, immersive, we'll take over a warehouse and do a huge piece. Yeah. Um, but that was really inspiring. I think having seen that kind of work and then kind of having read about other people's work, like Geraldine Pilgrim and at the time Zekura Uro and now Zekura UK, which then I went on to working with. I think that was a really formulating time of like this idea of like immersion was this meeting between theatre and happenings, so that kind of mm-hmm. 60s like Caprao, Caprao kind of approach. Um, yep. And that was something I was really interested in. And at uni, I made a collective called Cluster Bomb Collective. Um, and we made lots of kind of, at the time I look back at it now, there's no way we could get away with that kind of name now. I think it's definitely, it <laughs> No, I was going to say that's a great name. That's very provocative. It reminds yeah, me I of Naji think... from ZUK. That would be very much something that would make her giggle, I think. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it was, I think it, we came at it not really thinking about the kind of the war connotations that now we like question ourselves and problematic yeah. that is. 
but it came from a point of like we like the idea of the cluster bomb of like each artist within it kind of came together and then the, the event was like this explosive thing and then we all dispersed afterwards so this idea of the, the collective was always going to be temporary mm-hmm. um and multidisciplinary this idea of like by bringing different artists from different backgrounds together you can create something really unique and something mm-hmm. that um is otherwise wouldn't exist as everybody came from the same discipline like theatre or visual art yeah well it's very horizontal that way isn't it rather than sort of that very traditional theatre way of being looking inside and finding everything inwards I think um, a lot of work that's made like this is always interdisciplinary because it's such an interdisciplinary form and it's that very horizontal way of going actually what's what's surrounding me what's intersecting with me and what are these different people sort of bringing to that horizon and how does that sort of come together so it's it's so interesting to hear you say that because so many other artists work in this discipline in that way I think in that very horizontal way exactly and then so that was 2000 we had the collective 2009 to 20 uh, 2015 and then we kind of dissolved it because we realized we wanted to kind of pursue our own things and I was more of a solo artist at that time and then I went to did my MA at UEL at University of East London where yeah. um, I had been working with ZU UK um, mm-hmm. for a few pieces with them and then they started their MA and I was like well this is a natural progression I should do um and it was great I think like I love working with them I think what how they approach immersive work is like incredible and I'm the external examiner on their current MA actually oh right uh, right because they've moved Greenwich, from yeah. UEL to over to Greenwich and yeah I'm the external yeah. examiner on that so small world, small world yeah. <laughs> and so and then kind of Sent, and then kind of I finished the MA and then I moved, I decided to kind of move back to the Midlands for lots of personal reasons and lots of other reasons. Yeah. And we, I guess we'll talk about that later, but we had kind of made lots of kind of small DIY pieces together, just inviting each other to collaborate. But only since moving back to the Midlands, I've realised like, oh, why don't we make this more formal? Why don't we actually collaborate more full time? Um, and there's also kind of an element of like mm. deadline and pressure of like Alfredo potentially going back to Mexico in a few years. So it's kind of created this kind of, interesting point of like let's make it happen let's do it now um so that's kind of a potted history of what I oh I guess like what I studied <laughs> so I studied <laughs> performance writing at, um, at, okay, yeah. for my BA so it's very much approaching this kind of thinking about text in contemporary art it was like a very expanded mm-hmm. idea it wasn't just about writing short stories and like your novel it was like thinking about what is a medium of writing and what does it mean especially in performance like if you speak your words compared to like writing yeah. them in water on the pavement or or in fire or in dna code so it was like yeah it's definitely great but then i wanted when i moved to london i wanted to study something that was more about immersion and like experience and mm-hmm. uh performance based rather than something that was less in my ba yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's me. And um, <clears throat> I wonder if you came across um, John Freeman at Falmouth because he he very much works in that that field, and I know that he was there at that time when he first took over. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't ring. Maybe he was it very senior then, after. so he probably didn't do any teaching. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why. I think by that point we were so like finishing. I don't think we hardly saw much of our tutors, but yeah. Yeah, it's always like that in the third year, isn't it? You never yeah. get. You're doing your, your thing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And Alfredo, you're a visual artist. So would you like to talk a little bit about your background and kind of where, where you come from? Okay, yes. Um, I'm from Mexico. I'm from the Yucatan uh, Peninsula, 
the south of Mexico, close to the Caribbean. And it's very hot, different than in Oaxaca. <laughs> 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 and uh, I was studying, when I, I was studying um, uh, like a polytechnic in my jobs, and I was studying, uh, I did uh, physics and mathematics, mm -hmm. and like in A levels. And then I went to study business administration, but obviously I was always doing something in art, but I, I want just to do something like the former, my parents expected me to do like the typical way, you make your career in something that is going to make money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were pushing it. And at the end I quit at the second year at university, I quit and I decided to go full time uh, as an artist. And, and I was working, um, I did a little bit of work with the Polytechnic in, in the culture department in experimental theater. And then I did, I organized a group that is called Kitse, that's a Maya, another Maya name. In that time, I was 19 years old when I organized this uh, group that is like a, a choral poetry. And we won the first prize in the Polytechnics in Mexico, in Chiapas. And that was my proud because 19 years old and I won this with my mm. group. And then I won the first prize in poetry at the university, the local uni University of Yucatan. And it was just for me, what I'm doing, wasting my time studying like administration business and what I want really to do is art, you know? Yeah. And I decided to go full time in art and um, I was meeting other artists, you know, and we organized a collective that it was called uh, Frentes, uh, National Art, Spontaneous Art Front, you know, that it was like another collective with my, I was in my 20s. For that, Sebastian's got the history of when I was young, organizing collectives. And we did a lot of, we were really a group against the, the government um, policies in culture and education, mm -hmm. more in culture and art, because there was no really support. There was, they were always very um, protecting the artists, giving support to the artists that they were sympathizing with the government, you know, and mm -hmm. we were just always questioning, you know, why mm -hmm. there is no support for the artists that they are more independent, we want more. We were really a little bit of kind of Dadaist movement in the 80s, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> but Mexican version, you know. <laughs> well, there was that very, and, and um, Seb talked about this as well, and, and I think the, the roots of this kind of work do lie in that kind of 60s refresh of the avant-garde's kind of push <laughs> back. And there is something resistant and provocative and challenging at the heart yeah, of yeah. that. And, yeah, one of the things. Yeah. Even being a collective it is in itself, isn't it, a political decision and a political yeah. statement to work in a flatter, non-hierarchical way. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. so it doesn't surprise me to hear that that's <laughs> kind of part of your history and part of what you what you where you've come from. Because I yeah. did feel that in work, I did feel that sense of sort of people being brought together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was the, the thing, you know, obviously, you know, all the thing I've been working in. I have exhibitions in Mexico, in painting, well, a more visual arts exhibition. I did a bit of installations. Uh, in my times, like I said to Seb, I did a little bit of performing arts. In that time, there was not really performing arts, but we, we did something experimental. There was no theater, there was no immersive theater, it was just we were exploring, you know, uh, the way to interact and integrate different, because in the eighties, you know, uh, the people, they always questioned me, you know, I used to write like uh, um, uh, for a supplement in a newspaper, in art, mm -hmm. like I was doing a little bit of critical 
in art, in more visual art. And the people, they, my friends, they were painters, or people involved actors, or ballet dancers, you know, they were mm -hmm. always questioning, Alfredo, are you a poet? Are you a writer? Are you a painter? <laughs> are you a actor? You know, and in the 80s, it was just like, you need to be or a painter or a writer mm -hmm. or a poet, no, but you cannot be all together, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was just questioning, I think it's more interesting when you can do, you know, everything and integrate everything in one, you know, because you are tasting yeah. a little bit of everything and experimenting. And obviously art, it, 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 it made that experience, you know? Mm -hmm. But then in the 80s, it was your life question. Even if, even if still my friends, when I go back to Mexico, they still, they are teaching art or they are uh, a little bit famous in the local Mexico, you know? And, but they still question me, oh, Alfredo, now, are you still writing poetry? My friends, they were interested in poetry or in literature. And then mm -hmm. I met another friend, the painters. Alfredo, are you still doing the painting? And I said, yes, I'm still writing. I'm still doing painting. I'm still working with my son in performing arts, you know, mm -hmm. when I have a chance to work, you know. And, but a plus of that, you know, I, I'm, I've i been living in, in other different cities in Mexico and other countries. I live in Madrid uh, for a few months, like a long time ago, like 30 years ago. And I was involved in a group in Madrid and then... I have an exhibition in Barcelona and in Madrid mm -hmm. and a little bit of poetry. And I've been working here in UK in what is like working with the students in college or secondary schools in mm -hmm. more in the Merseyside, you know, in Liverpool area. Yeah. And I've been working with uh, like um, arts organizations like Tantara Arts in York. I think it disappeared because in that time, like 20 years ago, it was still active, 15 years ago. And another group, a local group, like uh, there was an ABS Latin American organization that used to organize Latin American festivals in, in the Arcadian Center. But at the moment, I think it's, it's closed. It's not doing for the pandemic. I think they don't have any, any money or any support. Yeah. And plus, I've been working in Windows projects in Liverpool. That is more writers and, you know, uh, people that they are involved in, in literature and other things. Um, but that's all what I've been just really working, you know, and I went to do a, a diploma in art and design just to get in touch with people. Friends, he said to me, you know, why well, you should do something local, you know, to have mm. to contact with the people, you know, and I did a, a diploma in art and design, like a foundation course at the university. Mm -hmm. uh, and after that, I say, well, I'm really it's nothing new what I, I want to see there, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I have two exhibitions, you know, in the I think Bourbon Visual Art, Visual Center, or something. Oh, the Visual Center, I think, is in Bourbon. It disappeared too. It's not there anymore. And, and then, plus, having a little bit of exhibitions here, exhibitions there. And then, so then Sebastian one day said to me, Dad, I'm going to, to Germany. Would you like to come with me to perform together? Mm -hmm. And then we went to Berlin to the International Performance Arts Festival. Uh -huh. And then, and it was, honestly, it was a big, opening experience for me. And since then, we've been working in Bilbao, we've been working in London, you know, with Coventry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now, and then it was it started getting closer, you know, because I'm, I'm work as a chef, I'm a full-time chef. You know? I was going to say you cook incredibly as well. You're yeah. making <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm working 20 years, you know, for the Hilton's hotels. And, mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, that is my regular income, you know, keep me 
buying materials, doing traveling, yeah. paying my expenses. When, when there is no money coming, well, we go and do it. When there is not enough support, the, the way I'm not worried about, you know, that, oh, because I, I know that I can use Cook. the money, you know, <laughs> yeah. to cover that. And I was reading your, yesterday, you know, many artists, you know, even in the 19th century or the beginning of the last century, they were doing it, you know. Normally, yeah. when you will read about famous artists that they were poor and struggling, they were doing jobs like many artists they're still doing now, you know, working in, as a stewards in a theaters or working in, in, mm -hmm. the, in the cinemas, you know. You know, it, it's just, you need to find a way to have the mm -hmm. regular income, but not stop doing what you really like, that is art, you know. And I always say, I said to Seb, you know, when I went to visit it, it's just, I said to Seb, Seb, you are, you, when he decided to, do, to go to Dardington, I said, Seb, you know that it's a long, long way, and it's a hard way, you know, to be an mm -hmm. artist, you know. Because he is 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 not easy like any other uh, profession, you know. But I want him to do it. But mm -hmm. I want him to be convinced, you know, that is really what he wants. And to be honest, I, I'm very proud <laughs> because he's doing it, and we've been working together. And mm -hmm. and it really, I don't know, it brings a lot of jokes, a lot of young energy, you know. Because I'm yeah. I'm almost sixty four years old, man, um, and I'm I feel like yes, we can do this. Yes, we like for the last performance, the Hanal Pishan. Uh, I said to him, Sebastian, you are pushing too much with that. He said, no, that you need to keep doing tasks, you know. <laughs> and, and it's nice, you know, because I keep doing and I, and I feel that I'm, I, I feel like a, a new person, you know, with mm -hmm. a lot of things to do. No, when you reach that age and you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to retire, I'm going to, to chill, to relax, you know. No, I, I mm -hmm. feel we're already talking about plans, projects that we already been applying and all the things, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But if, <laughs> even long. food, if, even cooking is is creative, yeah, 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 and it's a sharing, and there's a generosity to to feeding people as well. Mm. So I think even even in that job that sort of pays the bills, that there's that spirit of creativity, sharing, uh, yeah. and, and community in some senses too. Yeah. So Jose, how did you become involved in this sort of family business, almost in a way? <laughs> Well, after the, the performance in, in Berlin, you know, when we really spent more time together and talking about the idea, because Sebastian always knew about my paintings or my books or, or my going to work in murals, you know, because mm -hmm. I normally, in visual, I, I got murals like in Liverpool, in the colleges. And, and then obviously when, when you see all the projects, since he was young, Sebastian used to help me to do the painting when I was mm -hmm. having an exhibition or something. And, but after Berlin is when I think we find out that we can work together. We can yeah. share a lot of, we have a lot of things uh, of ideas, even that I, I am the, the old generation, you know, <laughs> but I'm learning a lot from him, you know, and mm -hmm. because he's just like, just get more involved in technology, to be honest, before, before that, five, six years ago, I was not interested in technology. I wanted just to have my mobile just for calls and messages, and that's it, you know. Mm -hmm. But Sebastian, little by little, has been, you know, showing me down the advantages, you know, to have to get more yeah. involved in, in technology. And then we started, sorry, getting more, more close in sharing ideas and projects. And um, but I think I think I met Jose first. I think I worked with Jose Jose uh -huh. as a producer. Um, for some of my own solo shows. Um, how did we meet? I can't remember how, how we actually... That wasn't the day of the death. Met. No, before, like before that. 
when we went yeah. to remember we went to this uh, space in London. But before that, ah, before you met, ah, yeah. before anyway, you met, Jose speak. Sorry, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I actually, uh, I did a few projects with Sebastian before this one, um, a couple of years before. I actually cannot remember how we met. I, <laughs> it's so strange. I think we just like started working together out of nothing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I helped him out with some uh, projects. Um, I was actually helping out with a, uh, a multimedia performance. Um, very immersive as well. Uh, just before lockdowns, we couldn't really uh, complete that project. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's still in development now. Uh, but then we started working in Itzatna. I came here to Mexico because uh, I was actually in the UK uh, doing a master's degree in creative producing. Ah. Uh, uh, and so uh, I, I came back to Mexico because my visa was expiring. And also because of this craze pandemic and lockdowns and everything, I just really wanted to see my family. So I just came down here. Uh, but I continued working on some projects as well. And one of them was with Sebastian who uh, emailed me saying, hey, I have this idea. Uh, do, do you want to be part of it? And I was, after listening to what it was about, it was about Day of the Dead. It was about my own you know, traditions and my own history as well. So I, I accepted like immediately. I just really, really wanted to share this part because I, uh, I know that Day of the Dead is known in the UK as well. It's yeah. a very like global, um, what, would, what would you call it, celebration um, that people do know, but perhaps they do not know its origins or the fact that, for instance, it is a sort of... Um, mixture of cultures of uh, mm -hmm. from Spaniards and from uh, indigenous tribes people mm -hmm. in there as well so uh, I really wanted to share that I really wanted more people to know what it was like and what a better way to show it than experiencing the celebration itself so uh, yeah <laughs> I think you're right I think it's it's recognized but like so many things unfortunately it sort of gets divorced from, from the meaningful things and, and from its origins. So people kind of know certain sort of symbols or aesthetic qualities of it, but not necessarily where they came from and why those things happen in that way. And so I think sometimes some of the authenticity gets rinsed out of it when it becomes a popular or kind of larger phenomenon with, within the cultural practice. I think it gets divorced from those roots, which is a shame. And I, I I found, I, I thought in your work, which we'll come to talk a bit more about shortly, um, it was working actually to reroute. So literally in the roots of putting some of those things back to, the, to where they came from and, and to understanding what they've grown out of and where the significance and where the meaning lies with that. And it doesn't make them inaccessible. In fact, it, it opens them up, but in a way that is mindful of where it came from and where it's grown out of, which I think is important. Um, and I think that the importance of that is, is only really now being sort of recognized. Because I think in the 90s, there was a big rush, wasn't there, for everything to be intercultural. And I think what happened with that was those roots got sort of 
sawn off <laughs> with certain things. And now I think there's a bit more care in actually going, okay, let's unpick where this comes from and where it, where it grows out of again and sort of looking at those things in a way that isn't just cultural appropriation. <laughs> Something that I just want to add as well is that, uh, for instance, mm -hmm. I have my own idea of what Day of the Dead is. Mm -hmm. uh, from my own place where I, where I grew up, Oaxaca, which is the south of Mexico. Uh, but with this uh, Hanal Pishan uh, show, I learned that other parts of Mexico also celebrate Day of the Dead in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not always, you know, just one, one thing, but it's like, you know, uh, it's localized as well. And uh, I liked it oh. because I also learned so many things, so many uh, new dishes that people prepare, for instance, <laughs> Um, the one mm -hmm. that you that you try that I'm assuming it was really good. It was really good. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't have a chance to try it. Oh no! Because <laughs> I'm all the way here. Um, but yeah, that is something very interesting to see how much I still also don't know about my own culture, for instance, and my mm -hmm. own tradition, my own country. Um, so yeah. I just wanted Thank to you. add that as well. So is that the project that brought you all together then was Hanal Pishan is where you came together. We've mentioned it quite a few times. So for people listening, I think we should probably sort of talk about it a little bit. Can you sort of explain for people listening what, what the show is, what the show is about and kind of why, why you went about making it? Yeah, cool. Um, so Hanal Pishan literally means in mind food for the souls. Um, and... I think when we were coming up with the show, the whole question about the title, like what is the title of the show? We knew we wanted to make a piece about Day of the Dead um, mm -hmm. because we celebrate it as a family every year. Um, and we have always done it kind of relatively communally with like mm -hmm. our close friends and neighbours. We've always had this sense of like here in our house, we um, invite, we make an altar and ofrenda and we invite people around to have food and to bring photographs of their ancestors. So we've always done it in this kind of communal mm -hmm. kind of community art mm -hmm. practice way. Yeah, but yeah. um so already the kind of format was there and we're like why don't we make this a show why isn't this more of like a bigger event with more people um and so from there it's kind of like ballooned out mm -hmm. um for me the big thing was like thinking about i like a twist on a title this idea of like food for all souls this idea of like inclusivity through death through food through community sharing kind of grief and like memory to me was quite key with this show um but in terms of like the marketing of the show, we marketed it as an immersive dining experience, mm -hmm. which uh, was definitely the key point of like, is this, and also focusing on this sort of experience. It became quite theatre, but at the time we didn't know when we were applying for the money and thinking about the project, we didn't know it's going to be such a piece of theatre. But I think just through the people we work with, like Jose and like some of the actors, it became more a piece of theatre. And I, th I think that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, I one of my favorite my one of my highlights was the um, telling of the origin story uh sort of in that really playful way and I, I really enjoyed that because I didn't know that story and I thought the way that it was played as well was really sort of accessible because it felt it felt organic and like it came out of the performers rather than something that they sort of of course they've rehearsed it and, and, and but it didn't feel presented it felt uh, like it happened, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed the food. The food was incredible, just to oh. say. And did you want to talk a little bit about the, the the sort of 
elements that went into making it because there was definitely certain structures I think across the show um, and different ways audiences were engaged sort of in that because it was more than just a dining and a massive dining it wasn't just a yeah. dinner party yeah, yeah. yeah of course yeah um <laughs> yeah so I think we'll kind of go through it like mm-hmm. please interject uh, uh, dad Alfredo when like at each point so we kind of created this framework of this idea of like, what are people coming into? What is the immersive experience of coming into? What is the kind of like loose idea of the context of the immersion? And mm-hmm. we created this idea of like, it, we are a struggling Mexican restaurant, um, a kind of clandestino, a kind of like secret <laughs> uh, restaurant in this kind mm-hmm. of warehouse in Digworth um, in Birmingham. And we wanted it to be, it was a sense of like, it was a family restaurant. So we were a family, a very kind of odd family. <laughs> <laughs> but the kind of the clear kind of like age relationships were quite there and the kind of like yeah. certain sense of like subtle soft hierarchies about like mm-hmm. the the father is the chef um and he's also the cook and he's also the shaman at the end of the show and then mm-hmm. I'm the kind of his son and I kind of the eldest and then the two other actors Fabiola and Daniela were kind of my siblings my sisters mm-hmm. and you were brought in right from the beginning of like as an audience you have to knock the door and then Fabiola opens the door and she leads you into this kind of little antechamber, this little kind of like airlock room, this like porch of the house. Mm. And she kind of offers you this kind of line, this kind of sensory experience with lines, which kind of relates later Smell. to yeah. <laughs> part of the show. Um, and then, so it's just really nice. And because it's so direct address, it's like she's literally talking to you, you're having a conversation. Um, she's kind of offer you uh, the tickets but she's like I'm not at the box office <laughs> and then you go through into the main space and you go into like the you can have your check it, uh, tickets checked off with our box office person and then you go through into the kitchen to meet Alfredo who is mm-hmm. cooking and that's kind of quite a key point and there's a handover of like Daniela is another actor who comes over as a younger sibling to take mm-hmm. over from Fabiola so we created this kind of like flow of audience through these different spaces and different experiences mm-hmm. coming into the main space with the tables where people sit and have dinner um and uh, then they meet me and then I am the last person uh, they meet and I ask them have they brought have you brought a photograph of your ancestor and an object of your ancestor an heirloom and of course most people do bring photographs few people bring precious family heirlooms that's fine I get that <laughs> into the a little bit risky um but then I uh, if people haven't we decided to take people into the secret room we've made full of this kind of incredible mm. charity shop stuff which is uh yes. part of this space called the edge run by friction arts um and there's lots of works in markets so all of that stuff has come from car boot sales and like um and I called it well, the I cabinet was, yeah. I was gonna say I was really glad because um, I came straight from work so it was difficult to bring stuff with me. And I, I felt bad because I was like, ah. But then actually I was really glad I hadn't bought something because I got to go in that room, which yeah. was, again, a really sort of salient moment because something jumped out at me straight away. And, and there was all this stuff. It was all really different stuff. Yeah. But there was something there that, that spoke yeah. to me immediately for the person that I was kind of holding and the person that I, I was bringing and I really enjoyed that moment in that room of sitting in that lovely old armchair and just casting my eyes over the stuff. And I thought if I'd have brought something, I wouldn't have had that moment. And so I was I was kind of glad I, I'd forgotten. Well, not forgotten, but I couldn't bring it because of work. So, exactly. yeah, so I was yeah. glad I had that moment. 
I think for me, making immersive work, we were always thinking about, especially when you're asking, especially for this piece, when you're asking the audience to bring something very personal and very mm -hmm. physical, there's always this question in the immersive work of like, what if the audience doesn't play along? Or what if they don't have this? Yes. Are they then excluded from the experience? Um, mm -hmm. And that's and and you can see it, you know it, like as an audience member and as someone, you, you can see the division that creates between audiences who suddenly don't have something, mm -hmm. you can't participate to the full extent. Mm -hmm. And that's something I really hate about that. I'm always trying to make sure everyone is able to get, there's a choice offered, but people still are able to participate. And there's never a kind of a, people like a second class citizen within that. Um, yeah. So it was great that people were, came into this room and they were able to like project their, what would their ancestor want? And I think a lot of this show is about thinking about what you're offering something to somebody else. It's more than just you. And it's quite a different ask like about, and, yeah. of asking um, an audience to think about somebody else instead of themselves, which I think is quite an, a key part of this whole tradition and this idea of the performances. You're thinking about this other person who's not in the room, who is the dead, like who is mm -hmm. the person who's not with us mm -hmm. here, but is here for this uh, time period. <laughs> I was just going to say that, yeah, you're right. I think that, for instance, as an audience member in other immersive uh, performances I've been to, it's always been like, uh, you know, be part of a performance. It's like a made up story, uh, blah, blah, blah. No? But for Hanal Pishan, it was really interacting with your own heritage and with people that you probably loved and are no longer here. So mm -hmm. that is something really difficult. And that, that mm -hmm. is something that we really struggled. But we were really, really happy that uh, all audience members in, interacted with us and um, shared the stories and brought their own photos and mm -hmm. uh, or had a look at the, uh, at the objects and said like, maybe like, oh, this object really reminded me of this family member. Uh, so yeah, that, that is probably one of our that was one of our like obstacles there. Like, oh, what if mm -hmm. they don't want to participate because it's something personal um, well, compared to other a, people? There's kind of a lot of um, it's a. It feels like a, it sounds like a big ask on paper, doesn't it, to get people to mm -hmm. to open up and to engage in something that's very personal, very intimate. But actually, in my experience, is the biggest anxiety and the biggest barrier comes if people feel they're going to be made to look foolish or humiliated or embarrassed mm. whereas everyone has I hope <laughs> someone you know someone who they love everyone has had loss and there's something and I think the, the structure that you used was gentle and gave a way for people to engage without having to realize that that's necessarily what they're doing because it was so ritual based and because there were sort of the tasks and not rigid tasks like you know gamified but um because it was gentle and it was clear what you wanted us to do or and I think that helps certainly as an audience member myself I think when your role whatever that might be even if it is you know participating in an escape room in a particular way or something like this as long as those as long as there's a space where you feel held and you feel that you can share in that way. I think people will take up the role that you make for them if that role is, is clearly articulated. And I think that's what you did really well. I think that room, those introductions, the way you brought us into that space, but sort of gave it over to us a bit too. I think people are, are comfortable to share when they're given a way of sharing 
that is easy to do if that makes sense and, and I, I I obviously I don't know how other people felt I can only go on my own experience but some other people in the room that were there when I was there I didn't feel that anyone felt embarrassed or there was any sort of hesitancy because mm. all of those steps made sense in relation to the structures that you'd built mm. I think yeah that's uh, I, I'm I think I'm agree in that point because in the second um, presentation. You you went to the first one. Yeah. Then the second one, obviously, we were full booked. Even we took people they didn't book online, you know. And and I was worried about running out of food because I, I planned it for 25 people. Yes. <laughs> but uh, the interesting thing is there was one person that I didn't know this person, but he, he came a little bit skeptic. You know, you 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 can have that feeling that mm -hmm. you are going to a show that they is going to talk about death and maybe you are neglect, you don't want, you are not interested and you start mm -hmm. trying to avoid that kind of seriousness about the, the, the show. And I remember he, he came and I was just giving the taste, you know, you want to try like, uh, have you tried Mexican food? You know, the, 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 the same way that I did for the first presentation. And that person was, no, 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 I, 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 I'm not interested. And, and he said, just try it, you know, you can try it. Anything is this and this and this and this. And, and then later by later, it was, okay, he tried one. At the end of the show, he went through all the process. And at the end of the show, he came and shake a hand and he said, thank you. I really enjoy it. And it was for me, it was just like, because, you know, that person, I think, oh, I think yeah. someone is going to be a little bit, you know, uh, sitting there and worried about what's going to happen. And maybe he doesn't show interest and, it can make a distraction to the other people that they will be sitting around or next to him, you know. But no, at the end he came and he, he and he said and he said, I really enjoy it, you know. It's something totally different that I was expecting. And and that kind of experience is like when when it make you think that, oh, good, you know, because at the end, you know, what we're trying is um, to share with the people just not only the experience of the food. It's just the experience of all the process to know more about mm -hmm. Mexican history or Mexico or Maya mythology. Yeah. Um, but in a way, like you said, you know, something smooth and subtle that you, you, you don't feel that there's someone is patronizing you or dictating you or telling you, you know, you need to leave, believe this and understand this. You know, it's just, just in the way to sharing, I think the people that many people they they got engaged. In the idea that we want, you know, just to present something, you know, that an experience and go, uh, and take you through a different experience in, in what it was you were expecting, you know, because many people, they were thinking maybe, oh, I'm going to have a big dinner, you know, even many people, they were trying to eat a lot of tortilla chip, you know, because mm -hmm. they never tried blue tortilla chip, but it was just the first. And then if you wanted to try, you know, you can try more. Can I try again? Yeah, yeah, you can try again. You know, and then, but just only to let you know there is food later and it's a lot of food and it's quite heavy. You know, you can you can eat as much as you can here, but later they're going to have more food. Mm -hmm. And then they will realize that, you know, oh, there is more something that you're only like eating or high, a dining experience or anything. Yeah. Well, I wonder as well if it's because the stakes were equal and I think that's that's the thing it didn't feel like theatre it felt like a shared experience and because it was personal to you mm. and because you were risking the same as us in that space 
mm. that it's a much again it's, it's thinking about those hierarchies isn't it? it is it flattens it out so when there's as much at stake when you feel that the performers or the makers are giving as much as, as you are being asked to it feels like a coming together rather than a sort of imposition mm. and and I very much felt that I felt that I could take more risks and be more intimate or expose more than I probably normally would because I felt you were meeting me there because mm. it, it felt like it it may that you were risking too and that it, it mattered to you too yeah. in a way that a lot of commercial work is not capable of doing <laughs> because perhaps it's, it's it's kind of it's not particularly sincere because of like actors who have been taught to play a role and it's kind of like often a lot of immersive work it creates is very kind of like fantastical worlds that mm -hmm. feel quite divorced from like the everyday I mean they kind of like traditional um immersive theatre of like the kind of noughties and uh, the tent yeah. and tents. whereas this is yeah much more about we in some way we are ourselves or we're kind of a version of ourselves but it's still related to our own histories and our own mm -hmm. kind of like losses uh, in that sense yeah and it felt more like a home in in that way. Even if it's even if it's not your actual home, it felt like a temporary home for everyone who was welcomed in. And that's mm. through some of the structures, but also through the the, the breaking of bread, effectively together yeah. with other people, does something I think quite extraordinary. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the food because the food was so central, but also central to embodying the stories and the mythologies. That you were drawing out so if you could just talk a little about that that'd be wonderful it was very good well everything is is connected you know with, if, if you realize every most of the food that we made it was core made you know everything was around core and corn is was one of the um, main uh, foods in mexico you know, people they we eat all around Mexico and now in the world, the people they start trying like tortillas, core tortillas because it's gluten free, because it's healthy, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I noticed that, you know, that they are normally traditional. There were a lot of uh, flour tortilla, the people they used to buy and all the thing. But then with the gluten allergies and all the thing, they find out that they go oh, corn tortilla, there's no gluten, you know. Mm -hmm. And they start the people really and they start tasting more and the different kind of core. And I remember when I, I used to talk to Sebastian because I have all every day, I'm work as a chef full time. And even when I'm not working, I'm still cooking. Yeah, and sometimes I organize, you know, with Sebastian or with friends or with family or with neighbors to come and have a little bit of dinner or have a lunch or come for a coffee. And that, that kind of thing, you know, for me, cooking and cooking and, and the idea about making this dish, you know, like the mukmi pollo, is the one that you, you try the big pie, piece of pie, is only we cook that dish, you know, for the day of the death. For that is uh, eight days, you know, that we celebrate in Yucatan, is we call Octavari, eight days. And then you can have that dish in those days, you know, like the um, El Pan de Muerto, the bread for the death that you have at the end of the presentation of the show. And mm -hmm. that's, only on, on these days when you can have it. Obviously now many people, they start, oh, let's do it another day because it's so delicious and they start making in May or in June. But traditionally it's just only for these special days when we make it. 
And obviously preparing the food is, is a lot of process because like, uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a video showing in the background behind yeah. the altar. And that was um, Sebastian and Moises, another member of the collective. He lives in Mexico City. Now he's in Mexico City. And he was, he ma they made the video when I was making all the ritual, the traditional ritual to make the Mukpipoyo. And because I remember telling Sebastian since he was very young, you know, when I was a child, I remember helping, not helping, but just looking around my par my grandparents and my parents, my parents making things four o'clock in the morning, making the earth oven, the hole in a big hole in the in the ground. And it, because we didn't have like a proper oven, we didn't have electricity or gas or anything. We need to create our own oven with a big hole in the ground, and they just covered with the wood and then with uh, banana leaves all the, the, and then cover it with soil and then leave it to cook in the ground, you know, in a mm -hmm. big tin, you know, container uh, for two or three hours until the food is ready. And the food was be ready when the people started arriving into the house to, to pray and, uh, and invite the souls or the spirits to come back for that special day when the food will be ready on the table. And the idea is that they come, they touch the food, first the spirit touch the food and then you can share with all the neighbors, friends, relatives, yeah. Um, the idea was just like making the food in that traditional way. No, it, was, it would be easy just to go and put it in the oven and leave it just to cook for mm -hmm. one hour and a half. But to make it so real, you know, like we need to look for the banana leaves, you know, and then I, we find the, the maize and I prepare all the food, you know, and, and all this ritual, how can I say is it came, you know, into the idea of the way that my grand, my grandparents and my parents, they did it. And my, my great-grandparents and, and all the tradition you keep passing through, you know, mm -hmm. in this case, to Sebastian and Emilia, my children, all the people that they are interested, you know. And, mm -hmm. and that, that, that was to keep that, that uh, I said, reinventing, not reinventing, uh, renewing the tradition of the way that the people in Yucatan, they do it, even that here. You can do it in a using more technology, but just to go to the backyard, make the hole, all the ritual. For us, it was just like engaging more in the in the experience, you know. And mm -hmm. and the food, obviously, was the selection of the food, you know, it's like to taste few food like the blue corn tortilla that people never tried before. Now you can find it in, in one or two supermarkets, mm -hmm. but it's not really that common. And the dishes and the cornbread, I I I don't know if I think you tried the cornbread. Yeah, yeah I did. The, the cornbread was really good, really yeah. good. And at the end, I make another one, and the same process. I make it just in my little kitchen and all the things. But then I, I make it for the second presentation, and it just when I I put it on the table, say anyone cornbread, and then boom, this in two seconds gone. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because it's totally different food, you know, that yeah. burritos or enchiladas. The people really went to have something that is not. Uh, like you can go to a Mexican restaurant and you find burritos, enchiladas, or even in a takeaway now, you know. Yeah. Um, but that, that was the idea, you know, to show a little bit, to share a proper traditional Mexican food, yeah, but really, really traditional. They just, in the villages, they, they, they do it and they're still preparing that food, you know. Yeah. And Jose, what's been the challenges in terms of trying to finance this kind of work? Because I know, and I've spoken to lots of different practitioners and there are lots of different models. A lot of the London folk rely on the bar. 
uh, sort of as a model to fund the work. So I know you've been supported by Arts Council. So what's what's kind of the process of sort of getting this on its feet and getting it up because they can be very expensive, these kinds of uh, more communal based works. So yeah, what have been the challenges of producing and trying to sort of fund <laughs> something like this? Yeah. So uh, I think you're right. I think it's a very expensive uh, project as well. Um, one of the difficult, of course, we were lucky because we, we had a space, but I'm assuming that one of the most difficult parts of uh, producing a, an immersive show is finding a space. Because mm -hmm. I have been to many immersive uh, shows and they always, uh, of course, need a big space where everyone can move around, where they can fit mm -hmm. a lot of people. Um, so definitely we were lucky because we have the support from um, this organization, um, Friction Arts, and they provided us with some space. So um, I'm guessing that uh, we did get a lot of support from a lot of people. And, and then, of course, it came uh, Arts Council, and um, they gave us some uh, funding for, for this project. Um, but yeah, so, um, of course, we were always thinking, oh, we don't know if Arts Council is going to give us the money. We don't know if we're going to mm -hmm. get the funding, how we're going to do it. Um, we adapted the show so that instead of having, you know, a big uh, group of people working on it, we actually had just the three of us. Um, and we were going to do something with just the three of us because we already had the space and we were gonna use the money from, you know, the ticket sales to uh, pay ourselves as well. Uh, but yeah, originally we were thinking, okay, if we don't get the funding, we're going to adapt the show, but we're still gonna do it. Um, mm -hmm. And the good thing about this idea of the Day of the Dead is that, um, as Alfredo said, uh, all these rituals and all these traditions, they are all very immersive themselves. Like, as he said, like, you only get this certain types of food at this time of year. So, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's Mexican and people expect, you know, oh, uh, they're going to have, you know, burritos and tacos. But uh, because Alfredo is a chef, he can cook original and traditional food and, in itself, uh, the show was gonna be like very, very immersive. Um, of course, we wouldn't we wouldn't have had enough people to handle maybe like you know, 50 audience members or 25, 30 audience members that we had for these uh, other shows. But but yeah, I mean, the problem you, with the money is always like you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I make one-on-one -on -one work, so I have kind of. The opposite problem that that's hard to be sustainable because it doesn't need space really but it's hard to get numbers and bum, bums on seats kind of through something like that um do you think it was especially in terms of space space has become a real issue in london there was like a bit of a boom where everyone was kind of jumping into loads of different warehouse spaces and they were making it available and now they've you know landlords have become savvy to the value of those things and so space has dried up a little bit do you think being outside of london um because obviously a lot of this work is really london centric uh there's very little that happens that's immersive i'm doing little sort of uh quotation marks outside of london so do you think in some ways that helped you be able to do that but then how did you how did you find accessing audiences as well being outside of that 
London bubble. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. Shall I, do you want to start, Jose? Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, just because, you know, this type of shows are rare outside of London, I think that's how we found audience members interested because it's something <laughs> new. Uh, and it's something that they heard about, you know, Day of the Dead, uh, but something that perhaps they, they really wanted to experience uh, mm -hmm. firsthand, you know? I did badge all my students as well, because after I went, I was like, please go. And I kept sending them all the information. So I'm hoping that some of them did come on that second go, but I couldn't make it. So, so Seb, did you want to talk about sort of... Um... Yeah, so I think like, it's, in, it's a really interesting question because having like grown up here and um, seen, especially in Digbeth and in like a lot of Birmingham, this kind of post-industrial decline has left a lot of these warehouses, which you mm. would think would be accessible. You think, oh, all of this space to do all this art, it's really difficult. And I think that's a lot because of all of these spaces actually owned by um, private landlords and they're all kind of just sitting on these spaces waiting for HS2 or something similar to override so that yeah. <laughs> rocket the land value. But I think what's interesting about London is that because perhaps because it's also the same case in London, like, you know, this is, it's the same narrative, but I yeah, think yeah. it's just perhaps there's a bigger contingency of artists who've lived in spaces like Hattonwick. I think whereas in Digbeth, no one's ever lived in Digbeth as like an artist and created that kind of like everyday residential artists are living in that area kind of gentrification, mm -hmm. quote unquote. Um, that's, I think, because that doesn't exist here in, in Birmingham, that hasn't led landlords to build that close relationship with artists yeah. to think about it in that sense or it's it's fairly recent in terms of like if you look at the visual art world how they have like Minerva works and they have this kind of for those who aren't based in Birmingham there's, an, there's a quarter within Digbus which is near the city centre of Birmingham that has a lot of visual art galleries but even then that's quite specific they're still kind yeah. of semi-commercial and kind of business a business venture and it's not necessarily performance so we I was also part of a group called Home for Waves and Straits who did a lot of performance art in the kind of um who were kind of the performance art kind of um, entourage for Birmingham uh, mm -hmm. in kind of the mid 2010s. Mm -hmm. And then we struggled to find space to get landlords to accept that what we did, A, was art, <laughs> was yeah. of cultural value <laughs> that people would be interested in, let uh, alone, oh, you should give us a space to have mm -hmm. all of this kind of, you know, out there stuff. So mm -hmm. even then it was a struggle. So, um, but then what's amazing is that because Friction Arts own their building. So they've been working and making kind of like work in Birmingham for like 25 years. Yeah. So they've already built quite a long kind of sense of audience and community. And for mm -hmm. them, they knew having a venue, having a building is one of the most important things you can have, especially knowing because of Birmingham. So they spent a long time kind of you know, raising their profile and securing capital grants to, be able to make sure there is a venue for this, yeah. whatever happens with HS2 in Digbeth. Um, and we've worked with them on lots of smaller projects and they have always liked us and supported our work. And they've always been interested in having more immersive, more non like traditional end on black box theatre work. So yeah. they're like, yeah, this is a home for you to come and make this, please make this here. Um, and it just made a lot of sense, especially in terms of like for us needing a kitchen. We really wanted to have like mm. a real kitchen people could come into before going yeah. into the performance yeah. space. And it was perfect. <laughs> it was incredible. We were like, it has to, it, it should be here. Um, and again, thinking ahead in terms of like when we do the show again, we're questioning this idea of like, can we tour this show? How does it tour? Or maybe it's like we have like, uh, you know, a few weeks takeover of the space and it's like a run. Mm -hmm. So 
yeah, I well, think if, if you figure it out, you'll be onto something because um, exactly. that's the big question is in, in immersive, isn't it? Is how do you tour yeah. <laughs> these shows when exactly. they are part site responsive? Because I think yeah. every single show that I've ever been to is in some ways site responsive yeah. to that site that it's in because you can't ignore the, the character of the building. <laughs> but you're inside and, and so if if you can find a way to do that I think there's some learning to share there because I think it's, it is tough yeah to share. I think one of the questions is is it tourable and I think kind mm. of being honest and being like actually it's not it has to exist within this space and just but mm. then it's also we have to then go to the people who fund us and say look we know this work isn't tourable but please support us to make sure we can just work better at outreach to bring more audiences in. Yes. Um, and I think that kind of approach um, might be good. And it's kind of interesting now in this post-pandemic world where touring is so much more difficult and it's going to take time to get back to, if it ever gets back to the level it was before yeah. pandemic, which is already, yeah. we're already struggling, weren't we? So, yeah, I think that's kind of, for us as a collective, yeah. it's an interesting question we're having now. Like, we want to tour it, but is it, maybe it's, you can't. But I liked, because I've been to that venue, obviously being in Birmingham myself and seeking out unusual uh, experiences as I've been to that venue on numerous occasions. And um, what always strikes me, especially on the night that I came, because it was so cold, it was so cold. It was almost that snowing kind of cold. (laughs) And it's quite disconcerting because I got the bus from the town centre. You got a couple of stops and you get off, but you get off amongst what looks like a sort of, uh, post-apocalyptic city <laughs> yeah. it's just endless warehouses with smashed windows and boarded up and graffiti sorry for anyone listening I'm not painting a very beautiful picture of Birmingham here but then you arrive into this kind of courtyard and there's kind of mural on the wall and then you know you not I knocked on the door and then got welcomed in and it was like this wonderful oasis amongst kind of everything else and it there's two things that strike me about that one is that there's something wonderful about that about coming stumbling upon this within sort of that broader context of of that part of the city that's just sort of been left but also it's just it's so bizarre isn't it that it's that's so close to the ball ring you know it's what 10 minutes walk from the ball ring 15 if anyone doesn't know the ball ring the ball ring is like this ginormous shopping centre is probably the best <laughs> but it's basically the town centre in Birmingham it's, yeah, it's yeah. a huge, huge shopping centres three of them sort of connected um, and the fact that landlords aren't and the council um, I found it ve- even more difficult to deal with municipal uh, yeah. sort of entities in any way yet all of this space is just empty mm-hmm. but yeah there was something wonderful about walking through that that empty torn down brokenness into something that was so homely and so warm that that I there was something about that that really enhanced I think my my experience of it and I liked the assurance of me in my place I can't remember I haven't been for you know two years because of the pandemic and and all of that I I liked that and but then I enjoyed being able to sort of relax into the warmth that I was welcomed into Mm. when I arrived yeah and so do you think you will stay then in Birmingham rather than be seduced to that kind of London, <laughs> London centre? Um, uh, we, we're, we're going well, to London. We're going to London. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, I 
as, as we speak, yeah, we have a, a one performance that we adapted because we don't have the full team yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be in London. Uh, yeah, uh, very soon. So, so yeah, we, we got tempted and we, we fell in. <laughs> and I absolutely don't blame you pretty much every I, during the pandemic. It's weird because I haven't really been up and down to London in a way that I normally would be up and down to London. And um, I still haven't been to a show in London since pre-pandemic. So what's the best way for people? So obviously being everyone is always cagey when they've got a show sort of in, in the makings. But what's the best way for people to sort of keep on top of knowing about what you're doing? Yeah, definitely social media. I think um, mm-hmm. social media is a great place. Um, and hopefully, like, however it's wherever the podcast is, we can add our <laughs> social media tags. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but then going back to your question about this idea of, like, are we being seduced by London? Um, in some way, but only as a place of touring, I think. And maybe it can lead into a conversation about Casa Isana, this idea of, like, because we are kind of based in the Midlands, you know, because we live here and, like, we are part of here. And I think it's important that immersive work comes out of London and that can exist and that companies can create work outside of London. And it is possible. I don't think um, it has been done before and it will it will be done. Um, and it can ha- and it can exist in its own microcosm and it can exist, it can grow in its own way. Yeah. That isn't totally the London model of doing things. Um, so yeah, and I think that to us, that's quite important because we are hoping to try and turn the house and the back garden in particular into something that's more, that has something a bit more kind of year round because the issue with a lot of immersive work is like you spend all of this effort doing this one massive show and then it's over and then you're kind of back again mm-hmm. burnt out deflated having to look for funding again mm-hmm. and that's kind of I think it's not it's never been good but I mean we've been forced into that because that's kind of how yeah. that work has been made but is there a way of new models where you can have this kind of more year round home or year round mm-hmm. way of making work and developing work and um showing it without having to have these big uh kind of moments moments and you have um, on your website sort of almost like an open invitation to come to the house do you want to talk about it's nakaza and my pronunciation is appalling i apologize but you do you say you can just email and sort of arrange to come over so i was really intrigued by by has anyone done that (laughs) And also, um, you know, what, uh, what lies underneath that, that invitation? Yeah. Um, for one of my plans to going back to Mexico is to explain a little bit is uh, to open a cafe gallery in my city that is in Merida in Yucatan, and but that will be when I retire that in a couple of years. But then working with Sebastian with the collective and doing all these projects and all the things. I, the other day, a few weeks ago, I was suggesting to Sebastian, said, you know, why we don't do something like a backyard garden cafe and art space, you know, once, one Saturday a month, you know, then we invite the people to come to the backyard. We have a few tables, few chairs. I made the menu, you know, like Mexican, no very uh, typical snacks, Mexican snack that you can find here, more no nachos, obviously no, <laughs> no enchiladas, no burritos. There will be more traditional Mexican food, you know, that is that the people they can come and try it, yes, and have a little bit of experience in in art, you know. And then plus, obviously, 
in the backyard is a big garden. I got like a cherry tree. I got two apple tree. I got a plum tree. I got blackberries. I got rhubarb plant, you know. I got a lot of roses, you know. But then, oh yeah, I start working about, you know, bringing more stuff, you know. And then maybe we can organize something, you know, once uh, one Saturday every month, you know, mm -hmm. to open like a a, a, <laughs> a clandestino, <laughs> a kind of cafe, you know, a kind of cafe, you know, obviously for two, three, four hours, you know, it's nothing. Uh, it's more like a, a, a really temporary project, you know, that it, it would be just working only during. Uh, when the weather is nice, you know, like yeah. summer, you know, and then- well, It's a bit like a salon. It reminds me of those, uh, yeah, 19th century salon, mm. sort of French avant-garde kind of way of, of artists being together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and because I am like in a, in a group, the last year, uh, I have people coming to see my work, my paintings in the house. Mm -hmm. uh, the Open Studios, Birmingham Open Studios, that's an organization that is around 88 artists, you know, that they just, they you open, uh, they made the promotional in the internet, in leaflets and all the thing. And then in when the days that you book to open your studio, the people, they come, you know, they come, they walk around, they look the paintings and and you can sell, you know, straight to the to the person if they mm -hmm. want something in, hanging on the, on the walls, you know. And that for me is just like, they come and they, they want a glass of water or they want something, but to make it more more formal and more interesting and, and having like friends that are, maybe they play the guitar or friends that they have maybe um, they, they, they like reading poetry or they write poems, you know, something mm -hmm. that we can do it in the backyard, you know, instead of just yeah. taking to the theatres and, you know, or to the yeah. places where they already all this formalism, you know, that you need to pay or you need to book the place and you need to to do all the job, you know, when here it will be some more spontaneous, you know, more, more mm -hmm. open, you know. Uh, and that was when Sebastian said, okay, let's do it that, you know. And that was one of the things that I like with Sebastian. I, I suggest something and then it start working and it start giving me more ideas. You know, I give something and then Sebastian start thinking and planning. We can apply for this, we can look for this. We, and they, oh, we are already planning to do this, you know, to, to this uh, backyard. Um, garden, cafe, and art space, you know. But obviously, you know, that will be still in process. It's nothing definitely, you know. Yeah. So we've yeah. had nobody email us yet. Yeah, yeah. But oh. I think once it starts growing, I think hopefully we can receive and like invite people. Because um, I think two of the kind of little mini projects, kind of sneak yeah, things yeah. we've had about for the garden, we're thinking about um, inviting the, because we live in um, a house of multiple occupants occupancy and HMO there's other people in the house here and a lot of them have a migrant background um so we want to we're interested in how we as migrants are, exist in this house and how we can approach land and thinking about what it means to us uh to be here from another country here in England in this garden and what it means to like build a community garden as a house mm. and how different cultures have different approaches to gardening and like food and and again the kind of the food and like growing as this kind of um yeah very literal way of us belonging together mm -hmm. um, it connects people doesn't it food food yeah, yeah. brings people yeah. together and there's sustenance beyond the food in sharing food together 
And then also because it's the Jubilee, the Queen's Jubilee, we're kind of interested in creating a kind of like slightly anti-Jubilee party, especially in the Commonwealth Games as well. We're in, we've been mm-hmm. researching a lot about like um, mm-hmm. afternoon tea and this idea of like this very kind of like British <laughs> thing. But of course, it all takes its um, its influence from over you know from the colonial empire. Um, so we're kind yeah. of interested in maybe creating something around June for this. Uh, so watch this space. We can't promise, but <laughs> I definitely will be. Um, I'm a big afternoon fan in the backyard. <laughs> afternoon tea in the backyard. <laughs> I, I will do. <laughs> I, um, once I have this book, I'm because my book is due at the end of the month, which is yeah, not very far away now. <laughs> Every time I open my page in my diary, I'm like, no. <laughs> but as soon as that is out of the way, I'm going to be a little bit more free again to sort of take a breath and lift my head and see what, what I've missed <laughs> for the last four weeks while I've just been madly mm-hmm. typing. But um, I I love baking. Right. In fact, one of the things I make that everyone loves and always asks me to make is a polenta cake. So it's polenta mm. and lemons and almonds right. um, sort of baked in this. It was a lot like your bread, only um, <laughs> sw- probably a little sweeter because it's got a lot of yeah. almonds in it. So it's very, very lemony, but everyone always wants it. They love it. And, but I struggle to get the really fine polenta flour to be able mm. to make it. Cause if it's not the really fine one, it's a bit like eating sand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very crunchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, I used to be able to get it in after, but they don't get, they don't seem to have it anymore. <laughs> but I'm, I'm the same. I love, I love, I like to bring people together through, sharing food and food sustenance and yeah. and the rituals and in my work I like to explore some of those very British things that sit around that but unpacking sort of the power structures that sit within those domestic sort mm. of very English rituals yeah. and so I'd be very interested um, to come along especially if you do something for the Jubilee I think it would be really lovely yeah. and I will of course always share it with my students too so right. I'm always I'm always saying to them go to this go to that and then they never do <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like their loss is absolutely their loss so I'm very much aware of the time I've taken up quite a lot of your time and there's a thousand other things that we could definitely talk about and we will probably talk again um so You've talked a bit about what's next, which is what I'd normally ask. So I'm going to ask my very final thing, which I ask every single person I talk to, is about the word immersive. Mm. What do you feel about it? Where do you situate yourself in relation to it? (laughs) And we've used it quite a lot, actually, in our conversation, because some practitioners very much avoid it. So I just wanted to get your your feeling of that word. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, immersive was a word I actually didn't know before coming to the UK to study. Uh, oh. We So something, when when we used to speak about theatre, it used to be, you know, the conventional, you know, show on stage. Um, but then I came to study theatre uh, in 2013, and uh, I don't know if that was the time when Uh, immersive shows started to boom and uh, started to become really popular Um, and then I did go uh, see a few and I was just like um, yeah like wow like this this show is just completely different like uh, it I am part of you know making the show I am I am you know making the show with these creative people and 
you know, even though audience members are always like, you know, a bit like, ooh, set back, like, oh, I don't know if I want to participate because I'm scared. But uh, mm-hmm. just the, uh, you know, the, the ambience and uh, uh, what the creatives are doing just makes make me want to like, you know, go and like help them create this like amazing story. Um, I don't know if I deviate a little bit from the question. Uh, <laughs> no, that's what I was going to ask you, actually, because you're a producer and there's, there's some yeah. sentiment here in the UK that the term has been sort of inflated by producers, by this kind of need to label something. So I wanted to get your thoughts as a producer on how you feel about that. <laughs> uh, do you know what? I think it has because, um, you know, people are, have always had like this struggle with the word theatre. Um you know, that theater, oh, it's going to be, you know, uh, tedious. I'm going to have to go sit down. And a lot of people use, you know, different words. And I think one of them is immersive, you know, because uh, when, when it has the word immersive, you imagine yourself like just uh, going to this place and having like a complete adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, you being part of the story and you developing, um you know the story with everybody so like it's really exciting and yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and, and it I, does it, it's useful still isn't it because because so much of the work is so different and the breadth mm-hmm. of uh, the sort of <laughs> the type of work that nestles underneath it but I think what it signals is you really hit the nail on the head there is is that notion of being in it and being an adventure so something you mm-hmm. you live through rather than sit um, and consume. Seb, do you feel sort of the same? Because you've used the term as well quite quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's definitely, I definitely um, been very honest and I still use it from a very marketing point of view, yeah. but, uh, from a place of that, um, because, because we've reached a point now where audience is kind, we've now have, there's more audiences now that have come to expect what immersive is and come to seek it out. Um, Mm-hmm. but I'm also definitely with you know having studied under ZU I'm very aware of like sort of like the post-immersive and this idea of like now the immersive is deeply commercialized and is very yeah. and is often I guess for me I also think a lot about um, access and this idea of like the relationship of class and accessibility to immersive work and mm-hmm. unfortunately it's, it's hugely um uh, split and very po- polar um polarized in terms of like you get punch drunk now when it's like 80 100 quid a ticket yeah. Um, and for me, I, I mean, in any kind of work I do, I want to make sure that a I can see it because I'm a working class artist. I've got no money. If I can't see it, then what? That's not the work I want to be making. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure that audiences were, were able to see it as well. Um, and we always try and ensure that there's always, even if people can't pay the full price, people can give something. Mm-hmm. Um, and being open to that and making sure that that price ticket is not a barrier to people being able to actually experience something that they really want to see. Um, because often you can have people who simply buy a ticket to the immersive show, but don't really care. You know, mm-hmm. that I feel like as an artist, you want that investment from your audience to be like, I'm here because I really want to experience this. Mm-hmm. Not because, oh, this is just uh, kind of throwaway entertainment for me. You know, I feel that's still quite integral to being, to making immersive work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm definitely still in this kind of dichotomy. I'm still on the fence of like, should we not use it? Um, what else do we use? Um, but also it is, it's still, it is still immersive. I think what we make is, I wouldn't use it lightly. I, for me, making something immersive is that 
you as an audience are going to have a part in the creation of the show in the direction yeah. of how it moves um, and you'll take mm-hmm. something away with it and it's multi-sensory and it's uh, multi-disciplinary yeah. that for me is what immersive is sorry I, i'm just gonna add i think like lately a lot of people <laughs> are really looking for experiences um yeah. i think when they say like oh for instance like great gatby like the experience like oh i watched the film i really want to like you know feel what it's like to be in the film mm-hmm. and that's what they go um so yeah i think like immersive is used but also a lot of the times uh experience is also used to sell like a show like yeah. live the experience uh the great gaps in the experience like things like that yeah 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 no i i completely agree and i feel very torn and i think it's so interesting that the uk call themselves post-immersive because actually they're kind of pre-immersive i always think their work was happening before that term came about in fact lots of the approaches that you use and those histories and all of those things existed before that term sort of erupted out but um when i came to the work i didn't think oh this is not immersive because you're exactly right it does the thing that you expect which is to put you inside something that you you live through in a meaningful way and so in that way, I think it was immersive. And this word is always going to be, I think, fairly polarizing. And um, mm. I'm probably going to be spending the next couple of years trying to pick some of this apart in terms of scholarship to write about it. Because I think at the moment there is, it is troubling that it's everything is called immersive. And I think actually there's a lot more nuanced histories and legacies and practices that are sitting underneath that. But until we have other words where we might be able to sort of articulate what it is that we're doing. I think immersive is accessible and does open up certain expectations and gets you your work to reach certain audiences who are seeking you out. So I think it is useful kind of in that way as a, as a very blunt instrument at the moment, which I hope, hope will be refined. <laughs> but you need to be able to articulate your work, can't you? You can't that's one of the most important things. You can't reach audiences if you can't tell them what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. And using a language that they have some grasp of and doesn't feel too academic or alienating or like unfamiliar. I yes. Think, yeah, that's definitely quite key. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, but I'm, I'm curious, like Alfredo, in terms of like immersion. Yeah. Immersion. To be honest, for me, <laughs> uh, I was saying to Sebastian, you know, I'm grow up maybe well in the in the ideas of the pop art, pop art happening, how all these movements, you know, in the mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, even the 80s. And when I mentioned it about, I did a little bit of experimental theatre, you know, where we try not just only a little bit of um, Stanislavski experience, you know, that was, that was a long time ago in the 80s. I was working in that way with, with, with the students when I, at the Polytechnic, when I did my studies, and they were the same age like me, but they, but they were respecting and following, you know, the way that I was working with them. And maybe it was a little bit of, <laughs> they, they feel a little bit of punishment, the way that I was directing or trying to direct or trying to, to make at the age of 19 something experimental. But mm-hmm. uh, for me now seeing, you know, the new world, like immersive theater, to be honest, I've been learning for the last maybe one or two or three years 
because I, I was more really in, in, in a different uh, position in art, you know, like more in visual arts. And, and I started doing performing art like seven years ago and I started working with Sebastian a little bit like DIY performances. Um, but then for me, it's just more like the experience, a mix of experimental theater and happening, you know, that yeah. kind of combining, you know, experience in my times in, in the eighties, that is for me the impression of what it will be immersed, immersive theater, you know, where mm -hmm. you can you can get involved, but obviously you can interact with the public. Yeah. I remember in the eighties, a friend of mine was a, a theater director, was one of my teachers at, at university. And I remember he, he was doing like there was a in my city, they were doing like um uh, the theater. You didn't have like the the sitios in the same way facing to the actors. They, you know, they were more like round, like in a cabaret, you know, where the yeah, actors yeah. were interacting with the with the public. Yeah. And and that was for me the, the what I remember in the 80s, how my friends they were doing theater and directing and, and what for them in the 80s it was just something whoa you know discovering mm -hmm. like something something new but then now i see it you know more like like the mix of these kind of experiences that it, it reflects what is now you know the immersive theater for me will be like i mentioned you know a little, a little kind of happening and experimental theater you know mm -hmm. but but I'm still really learning more about that. <laughs> yeah. That's okay, because I don't think anyone really has has a very firm sense of exactly what immersive might mean, but it's, it, it, it itches at exactly what you're talking about, that experience that sits yeah, yeah. at the heart of it. And I think that that's what's kind of central. Mm -hmm. So have you got any sort of really concrete plans for people to sort of look out for it or anything, or is everything still a little bit unfirm and secret at the moment? <laughs> I think the only concrete thing at the minute is that on the 1st of April, we will be in London um, as part of performance platform uh, based in, um, who are kind of performance art led platform. Um, and they're in a place called Open Ealing, which is kind of an art centre in Ealing, in West London. And we are going to be making a kind of a new version of Hanan Kushan. We're still kind of debating about how close it is to the original and whether it's, a, whether it's an opportunity to create something new. But I think there's going to be a lot of elements that are going to be from that. But mm -hmm. it's going to be much more pieces of like action art, um, performance art. It's just, I think it's just going to be the two of us, potentially mm -hmm. one other person to do the sounds. Um, yeah but it will still be kind of immersive and it will still be food and it will still be a lot of the, the cultural elements of what Hanat Pashan was. And a little bit uh, political. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, politics. <laughs> a little bit of politics involved. Yeah, Because in the <laughs> Hanat Pashan, there was not really politics about from the invaders, the conquirers, you know, but yeah. there was just like history. This one is something more, I was suggesting to Sebastian, something more, what is really happening in Mexico for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's likely just to give a little bit of glimpse of political thinking about the performance. Yeah. More than just the the, the show and history. Because it's yes. something that is still happening in Mexico, you know, and it's like it, how the people, uh, the native Mayans, they've been treated by the government and by the local authorities, you know, in Mexico. And obviously, because keep talking about the Mayan is because 
my ancestors, they are Mayans, you know, I'm half Mayan and half Spanish, you know, I am a mestizo. And, and obviously for me, it's important, you know, that they still remind the people that there is still Mayan communities living in the South of Mexico and they mm -hmm. haven't been treated all in the way that they are Mexicans living in Mexico and they treat yeah. been treated like a second or third or any class, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they got a lot of history and I'm proud of their history that they got, you know, but that kind of thing that the rest of many Mexicans uh, on the authorities, you know, more than anything, you know, they don't, don't understand, they don't, they don't uh, respect the cultural traditions, you know, is mm -hmm. for that, the idea to put a little bit, you know, into the performing in London, in the Elim Community Art Centre, yeah. <laughs> That's no, only the, 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 twist, the, the little bit twist, you know, from the Hanal Pichan. Uh -huh. Well, I think I think um, London can take a bit of, of provocative, edgy, edgier yeah, yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so the best way then is for people to perhaps keep an eye on the venues, uh, what's on, so that they can yeah. get tickets once things come up. Well, thank mm -hmm. you so much for being, um, as you. always, really generous with your time. Um, and hopefully we'll get to be in a room together again at some point would be really lovely. And I'm going to definitely come definitely. to your garden. <laughs> okay. <really. laughs> That'll be brilliant. So thank you so much uh, for coming and talking about your work and um, we'll talk again, I guess. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I certainly enjoyed recording it with Itzana. It was a really fabulous discussion. As usual, um, I really do love to hear from you, whether you are someone who is just listening and want to share your thoughts or your feedback, or if you're someone who makes immersive, interactive or experiential audience-centric work and think that I should be talking to you and coming and experiencing your work, please do get in touch. You can reach me probably um, best really at my work email, which is j j.bucknall which is b-u-c-k-n-a-l-l at b-h-a-m dot a-c dot u-k so that's j.j.bucknell at b-ham dot a-c dot u-k um, just because I check that email address more than I check any other email address because it's my work one. Um, if you haven't got a pen handy and you're running or uh, doing something else where your hands are occupied uh, while listening, you can probably Google me later on and uh, my work profile should come up so that you can get in touch with me. So yes, I really, really, really do love to hear from people. So do reach out and get in touch. Um, and as I've said before, Things are a bit hectic at the moment. I've got lots of research commitments and I'm working on lots of different projects, but I'm going to do my very best this year to get something out to you at least once a month. So again, no promises as to how or when or who that will come, but um, something hopefully will come in March. And uh, at this point, I don't know what that will be, but I'm hoping there will be something. So until March, uh, I'm going to be hopeful here. Yeah, until March. Bye.